This week on the Backtable Podcast. I sometimes get the question about, you know, how do I trust AI? And, you know, when you go through this course, you learn what to look for. You learn to look for, did they train their algorithms on a diverse group of population? That's one of the questions you should ask. The next one is, what is their false negative rate? Is it high? And, you know, this will give you an idea. And one thing I would tell you is, all of us use microwave, right? We trust our microwave. We never question, is it going to explode on me or is it going to kill my food? But I would say 99% of us don't know how a microwave works, but we trust it and we speed our lives using it. And I think physicians will have to come to a point where they will probably get comfortable with it, trust it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and of course on Backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you're going to hear stories from entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. This is Brian Hartley with Aaron Fritz as your co-host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Nashville and co-founder of an early stage imaging company in the pulmonary space. And Aaron, of course, is an interventional radiologist in Dallas and our fearless leader at Backtable. We are very excited to introduce our special guest this week, Dr. Eric Eskioglu. Dr. Eskioglu is a widely published neurosurgeon and chief medical and scientific officer for Novant Health, a large integrated health network in four states with 29,000 employees and 1,600 physicians. He is also co-executive director for Novant's Institute of Innovation and Artificial Intelligence. Before his career in medicine, Dr. Eskioglu worked as an aerospace engineer at Allied Signal Aerospace as well as Boeing. He continues to apply his engineering background in efforts to streamline healthcare, decrease errors, and improve patient satisfaction, often through AI and machine learning. With that, Eric, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to a really stimulating discussion. Awesome. I'm sure that will happen. So starting off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What was your path to Definitely want to hear about aerospace engineering and then, and then on to medicine. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I'm the product of an immigrant family from Turkey. My dad and my mom came here when I was five years old and grew up there. I always was very math-based and really liked math quite a bit. And my father was a physician. He was a pediatrician. I thought he had a really hard life uh, as a pediatrician. He was very dedicated to kids. And I did not want to be a physician myself. I actually was always fascinated, continued to be fascinated by space, by aircraft. And so I went into engineering. I graduated in 1989 from University of Arizona with mechanical aerospace engineering background and ended up working at two different companies, uh, Allied Signal, which is now Honeywell in Phoenix originally, and then ended up moving on to Boeing and worked there. And altogether, I worked about three years as an engineering scientist. I was responsible for fluid dynamics and, you know, learned the early stages of AI uh, way back then when it was called CATIA, which is a computer-assisted three-dimensional analysis of airplanes. And we were doing simulations of airplanes on computer. What would happen if a bird hit it? What would happen if they had too much wind? And so I fell in love with data analytics there. That was supposed to be my career for the rest of my life. But of course, all good plans sometimes don't work out the way they are. I actually started volunteering at a children's hospital while I was working and really fell, in, fell back in love with what the physicians did. And what was fascinating to me was volunteering on, on the weekends 
every child, every patient was like your fingerprint. They had unique problems, unique issues that you had to think through and solve it like a puzzle. And so within two months, uh, it was a pretty fast decision. I went to my supervisor, who I still remember his name. Uh, his name was Yogi Sharan, and told him that I was going to go to medical school and quit my job. And his initial reaction was surprised. He actually asked me, he was joking. He actually said, are you having an anxiety attack? Are you okay? You might've been having an anxiety attack. You never know. <laughs> well, he thought he was just joking, but I said, no, no, I thought about this well and hard. I am going to go to medical school. And I ended up going to medical school at University of Kansas, graduated top of my class there. I had a great time. Of course, ever looking for different opportunities during the third year, there was a poster that was posted on our locker rooms in medical school. And it was a brand new program NIH was starting. It was called NIH Pfizer. Pfizer was sponsoring it, a clinical research scholars program. And they were looking for nine students as a pilot study, like a test case to see how this program would work out. And the main goal was uh, translational research. You know, there's a lot of people obviously know about Howard Hughes program at NIH, which is bench side research that the clinicians learn and become physician scientists. They wanted actually translational scientists, which means that people who are on the bench side, people who understand the fantastic discoveries in the lab, but were able to translate that to clinical practice, almost like a translator. And so ended up staying there two years. And as a matter of fact, I never went back to University of Kansas. My dean was gracious enough to let me graduate from University of Kansas, but stay at NIH. I did the OB-GYN rotation across the street at, at Naval Hospital in Bethesda, even though I was civilian. So had a fantastic time. Of course, things have a way of coming back. I was a Pfizer fellow then, and currently I am on the Pfizer advisory board for vaccines in the U.S. So it made a full circle 30 plus years later. So it's been an exciting journey. Wow. So when did you decide on neurosurgery? Well, that was an interesting twist as well. Again, my life has been making serendipitous choices, but I wouldn't say luck. It's more recognizing the opportunity and taking a chance, calculated risk. I actually was uh, finishing, before I went to NIH, I was finishing my third year rotations at the medical school. And I was supposed to go to NIH for hepatic liver division. I really liked GI, and I actually was going to be a GI doctor doing colonoscopies and endoscopies. I was going to work with a phenomenal gentleman called Dr. Hufnagel, who was an expert in NIH and hepatobiliary disease. My last rotation before I left for NIH was elective surgical rotation. And I wanted to do urology as a medical student. You can imagine urology is what we call a cush rotation. You know, you come in at nine. For surgery, maybe. <laughs> For surgery, yeah. And it was a surgical rotation I had to do. Came in early, you left at three o'clock. You never took call. So I went to sign up and my dean, Laura Zeiger at the time, she laughed at me. She said, buddy, you're so late. There's only one rotation left. And I'm like, oh no, what is it? She said, neurosurgery, that's the only one. And of course, you're talking, you know, back in the 90s, early 90s. And I said, man, those guys are really mean and they're going to chew me out and spit me. I, I don't want to do neurosurgery. She goes, you don't have a choice. You have to do it. So I ended up doing six weeks of neurosurgery in the first two weeks. Uh, the first week, they actually put me into the OR with the chairman, Dr. Obojnik, who was a vascular neurosurgeon. And uh, it was terrific. He opened up the skull of a ruptured brain aneurysm. It was a 35-year-old lady that had a what we call Huntess grade three. She was pretty sick and I had never seen the brain before. And when I saw the brain pulsating, I was just mesmerized. And interestingly enough, it was like yesterday. I remember he opened up the skull and the brain was angry because there was a lot of bleeding there. 
And as he was trying to mobilize the aneurysm, it ruptured. There was blood everywhere. He kept us calm. He went to the table, picked up the clip, came back, put the clip on, and the bleeding stopped. And I took care of the lady as a medical student. I helped take care of her afterwards. And I was amazed how quickly she recovered and she went home in two weeks. So at that point, I started, you know, torturing myself. Gosh, I'm going to GI. No, Eric, you can't do this. You got to stay in GI. You got to stay in GI. You're already promised. But then that feeling inside you, the more you try to suppress it, it grows. And that's exactly what happened. I wanted to continue dealing with brain. I went to the chairman. I said, look, I'm not saying this to get a good grade for me. I'm already alpha, omega, alpha honors. I don't need the grade. I really like neurosurgery, but I think it's too late to switch. I'm a third year student. I'm going to NIH. He goes, nonsense. He goes, what are you doing next year? I said, I'm going to NIH. He goes, come with me. So he pulls me into his office and he didn't even know my name. And interesting, in those days, they did not care to learn your name at Kansas. They called you medical student number one, two, and three. I think I was number two. So they always called us by medical student number one or two or three. I walked into the room and he called uh, my, uh, my late chairman at NIH now, Dr. Ed Oldfield. And he said, Ed, I got my boy here. He's really good. He wants to do neurosurgery. Can he come and do it with you at NIH? And all I could hear on the other side of the phone was I could hear it. He said, oh yeah, sure. Have him come and work with me. So within two weeks, I switched from going to Dr. Hoofnagel to Ed Oldfield at NIH and doing neurosurgery. So it was an interesting change. And then I applied and ended up at Vanderbilt. Love Vanderbilt. You guys are Vandy. It is my home. Uh, it's such a special place. And I can't speak highly enough of my time there as a resident. You know, we had a great department. We loved working with the neuroradiologists, some of whom are still there. It was just a terrific time. I actually ended up being faculty there, stayed on as faculty as assistant professor for two years, uh, then moved on again, ever the adventurist I am, decided, let me try private practice in Southwest Florida where they don't have this stuff and establish it. So did that for four years, established a comprehensive stroke center there. From there, I, I went on to establish another comprehensive stroke center at a for-profit organization, Health Management Associates. And then I've been here the last seven years at Novant Health. Uh, the last three and a half has been as executive vice president, chief medical and scientific officer. So are you practicing at all now? I do see patients still, but, uh, you know, it has gotten less and less. The pandemic kind of hurt my practice a little bit more because I wanted my younger partners to have the patients that I didn't want to take away. So it slowed down quite a bit, but yeah, up until the pandemic, I was practicing quite a bit. Most of my time is really spent now trying to get the resources for the physicians that sometimes I couldn't get as a physician myself. And I'm almost like the interpreter between our CEO, CFO and COO. And I bridge that gap that sometimes we can have between the clinicians and administrators. Mm hmm. Aaron mentioned that you're attaining an MBA currently. Is that correct? I am. I'm actually, I went back to Vanderbilt, Owen <laughs> School of Graduate Management, uh, loved it. I am humbled with my classmates. You know, I'm one generation removed. I'm the oldest guy in the class being 55. It's been a humbling experience. I decided to do not healthcare related MHA, but I decided to do general MBA business. And it just opened up so many other horizons for me. And being able to see business from a lens of other industries, it's been phenomenal. And, you know, there are two professors that have made such a huge impact on me at Owen. One of them is Dr. Luke Frobe. He was my economics professor, opened my eyes to a whole new world of economics and thinking about healthcare economics. And I'll touch up on that in a second. The other one is Brian McCann, who was our strategy professor. 
And I mean, everybody's been terrific at the Owen School of Graduate Management, but, you know, those two professors really stand out for me with the impact they've left. And, you know, going back to the healthcare economics, I came back uh, after my first semester. I was so enamored with the economics part. And I told our CEO, Carl Armato, who's, by the way, a very visionary CEO, I feel blessed to work with him here. I told him that, you know, do we have a healthcare economics group at our institution? We were $8 billion. And he said, no, but tell me more about it. So I kind of went into it. I said, I want to establish a healthcare economics group because everything we look at right now, we have the clinical lens, we have the accounting financial lens, but that's 2D. We're missing the third dimension, which is the economics and behavioral nudging. And he said, well, why don't you set that up? So I was blessed enough for him to allow me to set up what we call EVE, Economic Value Enhancement Team. And we have three phenomenal individuals that are working on that team, expanding that team. And last year alone, we were able to reduce unwarranted clinical variation, help with behavioral nudging, and be able to save our organization even during the pandemic with pharmacy and every clinical variation we could find about $49 million. So I'm proud of the fact that we're not only making our institution safer, higher quality, but also generating financial savings. Because as you lower that cost of the healthcare, then you're going to be able to include a lot of the people that have been left out. Eric, thank you for telling us that about yourself. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about AI and healthcare and you know where it is now, where you see it going. First, you mentioned in our prior conversations that you, you know, a couple of months back that you see AI as the great equalizer for health equity and healthcare deserts. And so I want you to, to maybe tell our audience and us a little bit about why, why you feel that is. And then we'll talk about how you got involved in AI as well. Yeah. I mean, the reason AI is going to really help a lot of our underserved communities and rural communities, first of all, we can't get the talent to move into those communities. It's hard. And as you know, even though we're still in the pandemic mode and we had a pandemic crisis, we've also unfortunately lurched down to uh, staffing crisis, not only with nurses, but possibly with physicians. And the way we look at it is AI is extending the reach of healthcare into these communities. And I'll give you a simple example. You know, we work with a company called VizAI and we brought them into our system about four years ago. And I had to actually eliminate another system that we're used to having in their midst with the radiologists, neuroradiologists. Initially, they were very skeptical. And they kept asking me, you know, are you sure this is going to work? I'm like, I looked into it. I think it's going to be a really good product. And we adopted, we were actually the first in the East Coast to adopt VizAI. And what that does is it actually, for me, is provided healthcare equity across our platform. And what I mean by that is our teleneurologists answer a stroke call and VizAI is layered on top, the artificial intelligence. So what does Viz do? It actually, while the patient is still in the CAT scanner, it can detect the occlusion in the brain and the stroke area and send it into the app of the doctor that's on the platform and before the patient's out. Now, gone are the days, tag your it, and you send the patient for stat CT for stroke and the radiologist reads it. It takes probably 20 minutes and even the best of times, has to call the front desk in the ER. The desk clerk has to find the physician, ER physician. ER physician hangs up, says, call the neurologist. Neurologist answers. Neurologist looks at the images because he doesn't know the patient calls back in 10 minutes and you can get the whole gist. And by the time the patient gets treated, you're losing precious time. And you know, for brain, just like heart attacks, time is money. For every second of a stroke, you lose 32,000 brain cells. That's a lot of brain cells. 
So what VizAI has allowed us to do is it's had a bigger impact. It has had some operational impact in our tertiary facilities where we have interventional and neuroradiologists as well. We have phenomenal ones, but it's had the biggest impact on the rural communities that we serve where we don't even have a radiologist at nighttime sometimes to read these images. And the quality of the image reading is the same, regardless of the entry point of the patient. So they could be in rural Elkin, North Carolina, or uptown Charlotte. They get the same teleneurologist that answers their call for stroke. And they also get the VizAI platform that detects their stroke. And we've actually helped reduce the clinical variation here, standardize the care treatment, and being able to extend this to everybody. So I'm proud to say that we've accomplished, at least in stroke, healthcare equity across our system, regardless of their entry point, they get the same treatment in our system for stroke. And, you know, I'm hoping that this will be a norm for a lot of diseases we treat and uh, help underserved communities quite a bit. So given your passion, Eric, for data analytics and artificial intelligence in healthcare applications, we thought a good approach for this structure in this podcast would be to have you tell our audience about maybe the top three AI healthcare projects you're most excited about. Yeah. So at Novant, uh, we have multiple AI projects going on at any given point. And the ones that I'm really excited about is the ones that are radiology-based currently. And we're working with another innovative company called ADOC. And the nice thing about this company is it's in a little bit different field than Viz AI but it does help our radiologists quite a bit. We've implemented in our ER radiology sections. And what it does is, you know, right now, if you come to the ER and require imaging, everything's stacked from the ER and it's time-based. So first come, first serve, and it ends up piling on the queue, reading queue of the radiologist. Now, sometimes they can run up to 50 images they have to read, especially on busy times. And it could be that the first 48 are normal, and the 49th might be that ticking time bomb waiting to be read by the radiologist with a head bleed. It does create some anxiety with the radiologist because they don't know what's on their queue. And what we have done is with ADOC, it's able to scrub the images. It doesn't affect the flow of the radiologist at all. So it runs in the background, but does not affect the workflow at all. It makes it better. It scrubs the images as they come through with the AI artificial intelligence module. And it stratifies and it puts the ones with abnormal findings at the top of the queue automatically, elevates it at the top of the queue. And within that elevation, within those abnormal readings, it gives you a differential diagnosis. But within that, it further stratifies the one that needs the most immediate attention. So to give you an example, if there's a head bleed in the brain, it will put it at the top. And if there's a lung cancer, a chest mass at pines, it'll probably put it second. What this has done is it has actually helped our radiologists reduce the anxiety level. It has also helped our ERs make the thoroughfare a little bit faster because they're able to give disposition on these patients faster. So if it's a stroke, you know, they get upstairs really quickly. They have to get IV TPA or mechanical thrombectomy. If it's a brain tumor, if it's a lung tumor, so they don't stay in the ER that long and the normal ones can go home faster. One thing the radiologists have told me lately is it also seems to satisfy them from uh, professional burnout because they actually don't have that anxiety. Is there something really bad in my queue I'm waiting to see and that anxious feeling. So I think from my aviation background, I look at this as you know, your pilot always has autopilot now. It's become standard. You know, if you go to the airport today and the desk clerk at the airport says, we're going to fly today, the co-pilot and pilot are ready. 
but our autopilot's disabled, so we're going to fly without the autopilot. I would say 50% of the people, including myself, would probably walk away saying, I'll come back when the autopilot's working. And so the way to look at the radiology imaging is radiologist still makes the decision. He's not going to be replaced, but he has that autopilot that gives him the extra six sensory information that he would probably not have time to get that. Or if he tried to do it himself, it may burn him out. So that has been an incredible find. The other area we're using AI with Microsoft, and we're really good partners with Microsoft, is looking at clinical variation. And one thing I can tell you is when we start looking at uncomplicated pneumonia admissions. And when you look at that, that's a pretty homogeneous group medically, and it's uncomplicated, so they don't have too many comorbidities. But there's such a variation in the amount of time they stay in the hospital. But when we dig down deeper inside our hospitalists, there's a really big variation of practice patterns as well. And what I mean by that is some of them order labs every day, some of them order x-rays every day, some of them order it every other day, some of them do chest CT, some of them do what we used to call in medicine the quote-unquote Cadillac workup, which we know is not necessary anymore. So we're trying to figure out those outliers and get them feedback saying, you know, your colleagues in the same service did not do all of these extra things and their outcome was the same. Do you want to look at your practice pattern and see if we can change that and help you change that? Yeah. And you mentioned on one of our prior calls, Eric, how, you know, medical knowledge is doubling. What, what was it? Every 72 days? It is the air and it's doubling every 72 days. And it's expected to double every 30 days in the next five years. Just think about that. Now, when my father was uh, a resident, it was doubling every 100 years. So we went from every 100 years to every 30 days. And there's just no way a human mind is going to be able to keep up with all these technological advancements, all these great findings. And, uh, you know, people are surprised. You know, I get asked the question, where do you think in medicine AI is going to have the biggest impact? And they always expect me being a highly subspecialized vascular neurosurgeon, say something like neurosurgery or organ transplant surgery. It's not. It is going to be in family practice. Yes, I said it. Family practice. The reason I'm saying that is family practice doctors have so much data. They see their patients on a regular basis. They accumulate a lot of data and they don't have to, time to make something out of that data. So next time you go to your primary care physician, non-enchilantly, please ask them on your annual visit, how many labs do you go back? How many x-rays do you go back? How many you know, notes do you go back to see patterns? And I can tell you myself, I usually go back maybe one or two notes and maybe one or two previous images, but probably no more than that. So if somebody has accumulated 10 years of data in your EHR, it's like a woolly mammoth frozen in a glacier and waiting to be thawed. And what I suspect is going to happen in the next couple of years, it's coming soon, that we're going to be able to give them insights before the patient comes in and saying, this patient's hemoglobin level has been dropping for the last two years ever so slightly, you might want to check for colon cancer. And so it's going to look at the trends, AI, and just again, just going back to the aviation industry, I suspect it's going to be able to give you insights, what to watch out for that patient. Again, the physician is going to make the decision or the nurse practitioner is going to be in charge, but it's going to provide information that you can't glean in a 15 or 30 minute visit, no matter how thorough you are. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, as radiologists, radiology trained, I think about AI in pattern recognition with imaging strictly, 
but I didn't even think about the data and like the application for labs. I mean, that, that is incredible. There's a ton of data there that should be evaluated over the patient's lifetime or as far back as they can. And so I imagine that would pull out almost instantly trends that are worrisome that can then, you know, raise that red flag for their practitioner. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, our, our, our nurses and doctors have been overwhelmed with BPAs. I'm not expecting <laughs> this to be a BPA. Right. Uh, yeah. And you're laughing because I've been on that end too. <laughs> we all think about BPAs, but I think what will help is, you know, before the patient comes in there into your office, a five minute quick look at the patients, you know, what the AI is saying you need to really maybe look at maybe two, three items. So you can focus on that and not waste your time on the areas they're doing really well. I mean, just think about it, Aaron. How many times you get a chance to look at their creatinine over the last 10 years and see if there's a trend? You usually look at the last number, but that's a number you look at in one time, one instance. It doesn't give you the trend over years. You can't pick that up. And don't forget, there's a lot of unstructured data in your notes too, right? That's going to be natural language processing, like what Microsoft bought, obviously, with Nuance. That's going to come into effect, the natural language processing, because that's going to unlock all that unstructured data and figure out what are the trends from the unstructured data. So we are barely scratching the tip of the iceberg here. I mean, there's so much more to do. You know, talk about natural language processing. That's an area of AI that's been really helpful to our physicians too. We work with Microsoft on that area as well. And uh, Nuance, which is their new company, they actually are able to record the patient and the physician talking while they're in their in your clinic. And by doing that, it takes all that, ingests it in, knows which one's the patient, which one's the doctor, and takes all those complaints and using natural language processing and machine learning, it turns into a consult note. Now, just imagine how easy that is. And that takes the physician away from being a data entry clerk. And they can focus on the patient and they can look at their note at the end and sign off on that note. And so these are all things that I'm really happy to see. One thing that always amazes me, we still do that. I'm sure they still do that at Vanderbilt. When we get medical students that come out of medicine and start doing residency with us here at Novant, we have to teach them how to use a fax machine because they've never seen a fax machine in their lives. <laughs> They're not used to it. And we're probably the only industry that's still using fax machine. It's just kind of appalling to me, but we need to get away from all that. Yeah. So since Novant's Health is trying out these AI projects, how do you guys approach these projects, what you're going to use and how to fund them? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So I'm being the chief medical officer, obviously I'm in charge of all the safety and quality in our organization. And we approach every project of AI from the safety and quality angle. And, you know, I'm again, blessed to have our chairman of the board, who is uh, Dr. Bob Barr, who is a neuroradiologist. He's still practicing. So he has actually bought into AI and he really is a big advocate. And again, our CEO is a huge advocate of AI and he's a big supporter. So when you have those two support levels, it makes it easier. Now, it doesn't make it automatic because you have to still show them why you're doing this. But we approach every AI project that we have from a clinical safety and quality aspect. If we're going to be able to improve the clinical safety and quality, then we should be able to find the financial savings. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the companies we have worked with and we continue to work with is SwipeSense. It was formed by a very smart guy, Matt Iseri. And, uh, you know, this is electronic hand hygiene monitoring and also equipment tracking. Now, before this, and most health systems are still in the same way, we used to do manual hand hygiene observation. Just think about it. This is just pre-pandemic. 
we have another nurse or a nurse practitioner watching other people wash their hands and document that. Now, we started the swipe sense with Merit just before the pandemic, maybe a year before the pandemic. We wanted to try it out. It was such a success that we were starting to roll it out and the pandemic hit us. And guess what? The manual hand hygiene observation became very difficult to do when we had six feet distancing, when we had nursing shortage. And we immediately switched all of our facilities. We accelerated our rollout. And that's been a terrific success. But those are things that we're taking off the plates of the nurses and physicians and putting on more automation. And going back to safety and quality, I can tell you no hospital CEO, board, or even clinician is going to argue that I don't want to be the safest and highest quality healthcare system. So it has a big traction and buy-in. Now, you probably heard, Brian, a lot of people say, well, what's the ROI on that? And you know that's going to come up. I look at ROI as return on innovation, not return on investment. And, you know, I approach our CFO, we have a terrific CFO, Fred Hargett. And, you know, I have to justify why I need to spend this much money. And part of that ROI shows up in your reduced readmissions. It shows up on your leapfrog scores. And these all actually end up being financial gains. You know, if you can reduce your readmissions and you reduce your hospital-acquired infections and serious safety events, then all of a sudden your penalties go down and you actually start getting money back from the government. And so those are all big things that make a huge difference. The other thing I mentioned is by using AI from the safety and quality lens, we've been looking at reducing clinical variation. When you reduce clinical variation, believe it or not, the safety and quality goes up tremendously. And when you do that, that ends up being a huge benefit because if we're saving $49 million from safety and quality, and made that kind of saving. Just imagine the amount of revenue we have to generate to make that $49 million. So, you know, these are all things I'm cognizant and you can't just freely spend money. So that is definitely true. But I think if you approach it from the safety and quality lens, I don't think you're going to have too many people that's going to argue with you and you're going to get a lot of people that are going to be your supporters. Real quick on that, Eric, I want to ask about how AI can help prevent burnout previously. And one thing that when, you know, we talk to a lot of docs about burnout on the show and, you know, one thing that I commonly hear people complain about is us being data entry clerks, right? Spending a lot of time charting, spending a lot of time on EHR. Are you seeing anything, any AI applications that helps reduce the amount of charting that we have to do? Because I, I do see that that seems to be a pain point for physicians. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about the fact that we can use AI with machine learning and natural language processing to generate your note. So that takes you away from being a data entry clerk because you're talking to your patient, you're listening to your patient, and the speaker is capturing all of this and turning it through machine learning and natural language processing into a note. And our physicians love this. I think that's one of the areas. The other thing is, again, automating stuff. You know, when you automate stuff and take away things that really can be done by AI and you allow the physicians to do the highly cerebral things that they want to do and spend more time with the patients, you're going to increase the patient satisfaction. You're going to increase the patient satisfaction besides that, the physician satisfaction. And that's going to help with the burnout. You know, I want to go back to one other thing. You know, we're talking about the variations and there was a JAMA Health Forum that just came out in January 28th, 2022, just a couple of weeks ago. And it was talking about physician practice pattern variations and common clinical scenarios within the five U.S. metropolitan areas. I would urge our readers to go back and look at that. 
And when they see that, you know, they, they had 14 quality uh, measures and appropriateness of care. And this was between cardiology, endocrinology, gastroenterology, pulmonology, orthopedics, and neurosurgery. The difference were appalling when they looked at 8,788 physicians and the outcomes were all over the place. So that goes back to our knowledge is really getting wider, but as the medical knowledge gets wider, we're having a lot of variation in clinical practice, and that's actually hurting us rather than helping us. Yeah. What projects do you think the average physician should be looking out for in their practices? And are there any resources that you recommend that help docs kind of like get up to speed and stay up to speed with these things? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I would recommend docs is uh, there is a new board that my dear friend, Dr. Anthony Cheng formed. It's called ABAIM, American Board of Artificial Intelligence and Medicine. And uh, we do have two days or full days of educational course once a month where you can learn the basics of AI. And I love the way Anthony explains it. He says, just because you go to France as a French ambassador doesn't mean that you have to write a literature in French but you have to be able to have a basic language skill of French so you can communicate. So what this does is it gives our clinicians, and we've actually put through, I'm proud to say at Novant, we've put through at least eight physicians currently. We're putting more through this program, but it gives them an understanding is what is AI? What is machine learning? What is recurrent neural network? What is uh, convolutional neural network? What is random forest analysis? What is reinforced learning? These are all foreign concepts to them. And they can understand what it is so they can make clear decisions. Look, I'm one person and I can't be responsible for AI for an $8 billion organization. It won't work. So you have to have other evangelists who believe in this, who at least understand the use of it and who can be your next generation of leaders who push it. So I'd recommend our listeners to really look into that course, especially your clinical. We've actually put our chief nursing officers through that, a couple of them. I'm proud to say we've put our pharmacists through them. So it is a phenomenal course, and I think it will give you an idea of what you're looking for. Now, Aaron, I, I sometimes get the question about, you know, how do I trust AI? And, you know, when you go through this course, you'll learn what to look for. You'll learn to look for, did they train their algorithms on a diverse group of population? That's one of the questions you should ask. The next one is, what is their false negative rate? Is it high? And, you know, this will give you an idea. And one thing I would tell you is all of us use microwave, right? We trust our microwave. We never question, is it going to explode on me or is it going to kill my food? But I would say 99% of us don't know how a microwave works, but we trust it and we speed our lives using it. And I think physicians will have to come to a point where they will probably get comfortable with it, trust it. But it is also incumbent upon the AI community to make sure that the physicians get the AI that works, the tool that works, and it's trained on it doesn't have bias. I mean, that's one of the things we have to be careful. We don't have any biases and we include a diverse group of populations. Is, I mean, that ABI, AIM, are, can you get certified in AI medicine and like board certification? Yeah, you can take your exam. Uh, there's an exam afterwards. I think it's a uh, hundred questions. And if you pass it, you do get a certification of American Board of Artificial Intelligence and Medicine. Now, the goal is to make a board certification eventually, and I think, I know Anthony is working on that, but it's just terrific group, like-minded people. We actually have journal clubs, so it's Im impressive to listen on those journal clubs. And I tell people initially the first couple of days, you're probably going to feel like you just landed in a foreign country and you don't know anything about the language, but the more you listen and the more you participate, the more it's going to start coming natural to you because you're going to pick up things here and there 
you know, little things every time you're on and it's going to accelerate as you get better and better at it. Yeah. I'm actually very interested in that. I'm going to look it up when we get off. Any book recommendations around AI? Book recommendations. So there are obviously ABIM, Dr. Anthony Chang has written a great book. So I would recommend that. There is two other books, and one of them is my dear friend, Tom Lowry, who is the U.S. Director for AI Healthcare at Microsoft. So he has a book in AI. He's actually in the process of coming up with a second book. So I'd urge everybody to look at it because it does bridge the difference between the clinicians and uh, the administrators. Tom has had an illustrious career, and he was in healthcare as an administrator. Now he's at Microsoft. So he, his book actually helps both administrators and clinicians. The other one is Dr. Eric Topol. He's one of the godfathers of AI, and he has a book called Deep Medicine. I think that's a terrific book for everybody to read as a starting point because it gives you an idea what AI can do in healthcare. So those, uh, those three books, Dr. Anthony Chang, Tom Lowry, and Eric Topol, I think those were the ones I would, I, I started out with those about six years ago, and it's been a terrific journey. All right. Yeah, I, I have Deep Medicine. I'm working my way through that. So that's my starter point. Perfect. And Eric, one last fun question, since you have a background in aerospace engineering, we want to kind of get an idea of, you know, from the perspective of an aerospace engineer, what do you think about SpaceX and Elon Musk's vision and mission? So first of all, I'm always fascinated with space. And I can tell you, you know, during the pandemic, unfortunately, a lot of these SpaceX launches and other launches kind of went unnoticed. But if you pay attention, we've been launching a spacecraft twice a week now. And my suspicion is we're going to probably colonize the moon in the next two to three years. It is a race to colonize the moon. It's probably going to be between us, China, and uh, Russia. And once we colonize the moon, the interesting question becomes, how do we provide healthcare on the moon? And that's going to happen in my lifetime. I can guarantee you that. Now, colonization of Mars probably won't be in my lifetime. I'll probably be dust in somebody's petunia garden by the time that happens. It's kind of fun to think about it. But, you know, when you think about it, when we colonize the moon, how are we going to deliver healthcare? And whatever we start thinking about healthcare on the moon is going to be really applicable to rural communities because some of them are 150, 200 miles away from the nearest healthcare center or hospital. So I think there's going to be a lot of things. I think Elon Musk is very visionary. He talks about having implants in your brain to make you more effective. And as neurosurgeon, we joke about it, but, you know, we only use 10 to 15% of our brain. And if you can maximize that, I think there's a way, there's going to be a way to do that. So that human brain, artificial intelligence and microchip interference is going to be interesting over the next five to 10 years. And I think we'll be able to see that happening in our lifetime. One interesting fact, do you know how long it takes if you're on Mars and if somebody sends a signal saying, you know, I'm in trouble, do you know how long it takes to get that signal back on earth? I don't. It's about six hour delay. So just think if you try to do telemedicine on Mars right now, it won't happen. <laughs> when you do that from the moon, when you do that from the moon, it's less than five second delay. So it's very doable from the moon, but it's not, unfortunately, six hours between Mars and here with the current technology is not doable. So I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm actually would love to see more focus on medicine and space because a lot of our discoveries also have come from space exploration. I mean, when you think about titanium screws, titanium plates, those are all space devices or space material that have found their way into healthcare. Interesting. Well, Eric, we're coming up on the hour. We want to thank you for coming on. Really appreciate you educating us on AI healthcare applications and love what you guys are doing at Novant Health. And, you know, we have some other 
guys in the AI space coming on here shortly. Tamir Wolf is coming on from theater.io. We've got Alad Wallach from uh, AI Doc. And so just to let our audience know that uh, we're going to be covering AI more in depth and maybe we'll have you back on, Eric, to give us an update on projects at Novant and how they're going. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you having me here. I want to give a quick shout out to my loving wife, Lauren, and my three kids, Allie, Blake, and Camden. Without their support and love, I wouldn't be where I am today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Backtable listeners. That about does it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Anne Dang. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. And Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.